welcome to the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, the podcast that follows three integral recovery practitioners on the journey of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. Join us and our trailblazing guests as we apply the principles of integral recovery, daily practice, and the aqua map to transcend limitations, accelerate growth, and heal ourselves and hopefully the world. And now here are John Dupuy, Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm Doug Prater with the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, episode number four, Cleaning Up. Well, good morning, good evening, good night, good day. See you later. No, I'm kidding again. This is this is the fourth Integral Recovery, the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, and we're just getting rolling here. And yeah, we're just starting to find our sea legs, so to speak. So we're just evolving these things and changing up and starting to play like a band and just getting it together. Well, you're all part of that. So it should hopefully it'll be fun to watch and, and we'll just get better and better and better. So one of the things we want to do is start off with a cool quote like an inspiring tidbit or morsel or a vitamin or however you want to say that. And the one I, I sent around one from a Zen master. And what was his name, um, Bob? I don't remember his name. Okay, well. A very Zen response. Right. And since this guy probably doesn't have an ego being a Zen master, he won't get offended if you don't uh, quote him. But anyway, his quote was, religion is not an idea, it's a practice. And we kind of flip that around to say recovery is not an idea, it is a practice. And how true that is will become more apparent as we start to unpack this thing. And there's so much, you know, and it it may be a little complicated and complex, but somebody said one time, every answer, I might've been Einstein, one of these guys, one of these really smart people, he said that that the answer to every solution needs to be as simple as possible, but no simpler. And another guy said, he said, there's a simple solution to every problem that doesn't work. (laughs) <laughs> okay. So if you try to simplify it too much, it's just not going to cover all the bases and the, and the, the house is not going to, you know, I want one pole for this table. That'll make it stable. Heck no, it's going to fall over. And there's a little thing before we start getting into the aqua model, which is like infinite and hopefully we'll, we'll make it kind of uh, it's not infinite, but it explores a universe and a reality that's really pretty much infinite. So the more you look into it, the more you see, and it's just like that. That's, that's the way depth goes from deep to deep. But the idea today that we thought we want to talk about, it was going to be the tagline, and maybe it is a tagline, but it didn't fit on our little thing there. But this is a tagline. So you say the journey of recovery, colon, it is clean up, wake up, grow up, and show up. Okay. So I was talking to Bob about that the other day, and he was saying, yeah, you got to do the shadow work for the cleanup. Let's just start with that one. Yeah, you, know, you got to stop taking drugs, too, you know, or, or drinking if you're an addict. And, and let me say that I'm not here to preach teetotaling to everybody on the planet. You know, some people can drink and they're fine. Some people can occasionally smoke a joint or some. I don't know if you can occasionally do meth. <laughs> I don't think you should do that. Uh, but, you know, there, there are people that aren't addicts or they'll, they'll take a sip of whiskey and they go, oh, yeah, why does anybody drink this stuff? And so different people have different reactions and not everybody falls into addiction and can't stop their consumption, even though they can see it's causing great pain and suffering and screwing up their lives. So the first thing you have to do is clean up. And in the integral thing, and I'll make one little statement, then I'll shut up and let everybody else come in, is that everything integral, remember you have an interior, which is your interior life that has to be cleaned up, your emotions, your spiritual work, your resentments, your traumas, all that stuff. And you have the exterior, which is your physical body. Both of those things, as a start, you need to start the work cleaning up, and it's an ongoing process. So, so if you yeah, listen to episode two where we were talking about the uh, Olds experiment, there, that's dealing with exteriors, and here we're <laughs> talking about uh, 
cleaning up. This is the, uh, the shadow work part of that, dealing with the interior. And like John said, all four of those quadrants are important to the recovery. Just wanted to throw that in there too. Yeah. And this is kind of where we're getting into how all these things start to fit together now. I like I like what both of you are saying. I uh, I wonder if this fits here. Is that uh, a lot of the work I do with uh, addicts and recovery relates to um, this this stage cleaning up. Uh, I, I work with addicts that are very early in recovery from heroin and meth. What we establish early on is that they need to clean up, and we talk about they need to get back to their birthday brains. Is is, nice. is the language I use for this, and that cleaning up in the interior, John, as you were talking about, whether it's working on personal shadow stuff or wounds to a relationship really requires having a stable baseline of, of a brain. And so I can't, I, I don't even see, I can't even separate these anymore. A clean brain makes for the possibility to clean up my shadow stuff interiorly, relationally, and so on. Uh, even to clean up my life in terms of assuming responsibility. So that's really kind of the entry point. I'll tell you something, you guys, I'm amazed by how quickly sobriety, even with severe addiction, how quickly sobriety opens up, of, this is for, you know, hardcore addicts, how quickly it opens up resources to do the shadow work. I continue to be amazed by that. It doesn't even necessarily square with the literature. The idea would be, well, you're going to need this many weeks or months of, of abstinence. And that's not been my experience. People very quickly, depending on their kind of pre-morbid functioning, can self-write and get into conversations about forgiveness, issues of shame, et cetera, and the cleaning up stuff, of just having a few weeks under their belt. So anyway, that's encouraging stuff. Yeah, yeah, and you said the resources to do the shadow work. Can you unpack that a little bit? What does that mean? I, uh, I, I just think about it, John, in terms of addiction. I'm, so much of my work is with uh, drug and alcohol addiction, is that uh, it leads to hypofrontality, which is the, the frontal lobes are just severely compromised. And so the resources that are required for making you know, executive decisions, making moral decisions, making relationally-based decisions, all of those require a functioning frontal lobe uh, situation. And so that's all I mean by resources, is that to do the work, to do the self-reflection, to meditate effectively, to work on relational foul-ups, et cetera, to work on all that requires moving from what most addicts are. I use a shorthand, we're just living limbically, living, living in the yeah. emotions of the brain. And you got to somehow be able to get some inhibition going on with the frontal lobes. That's what I meant. So then as those post-acute withdrawal symptoms start to clear up, you're actually able to look inside and determine what's going on that much more clearly, yes. get a better picture of the shadow issues that you're dealing yeah. with so that you yeah. can take care of them. Yes. Yeah. In fact, one yeah. of the things that we do is we actually go right in and work with post-acute withdrawal syndrome. I, I talk about it, teach the clients about it. Okay. And, what is post-acute withdrawal symptoms for those of uh, us who don't know what you're talking about? That's really good. I'll take a stab at it and you guys can dive in here, but it's a, it's a whole host of, you know, I remember in my own, my own early recovery, the idea was, well, if I just stop drinking and drugging, I'll be all better. And in fact, it was a very jagged kind of process over the next, I'd say, six months for me. And it would be longer for some people, depending on their biology, et cetera. Six months of a lot of, I think of it in terms of Swiss cheese. I felt like I'd be solid and I'd just fall right through a hole. This went on for months for me, John. And, and so what went on was emotional roller coaster. I'd be fine one day and like shit the next day. Uh, physically be uh, really feeling robust, working out the next day, feel wiped out. And, uh, and even cognitively, just in terms of being able to function in any yeah. kind of, uh, regular way. A lot of it for me was regaining uh, any semblance of normal sleep. And uh, yeah. that, just, that took weeks and months to develop that back again. So 
The post-acute withdrawal, if you think about acute withdrawal, is like the first couple, three weeks, let's say, just withdrawing from you know, yeah. the, the, the cortisol and the adrenaline are flowing and so on. But once you're through that, you think, oh, now I'm off heroin, I'm all good to go. No, you're not. It's like the body's going to reset over a period of months. Yeah. So I think it's important to teach clients to uh, be conversant with this. I think it's important to teach their loved ones because loved ones will look at that behavior and think, you're using again, John. And it, it may not always be accurate. If you're sincere about your sobriety, it's not accurate, but you look like you're loaded. You look like you're messed up. Again. Yeah, you know, when, when our house was for a number of years, our home here in Southern Utah was, we'd fill it up with addicts and, you know, it was this ongoing like treatment center, yeah. uh, mom and pop sort of thing. But we found that usually after about two weeks of really good nutrition, of exercise, of loving, supportive, you know, relationships, and learning and doing the brain entrainment, the binaural meditation, that usually after about two weeks, the sleep patterns would start getting a lot better. And the people would start coming into, you know, back into feeling like a, a human being again. So I think that uh, you can work with those things. You can't, you can't um, completely do away with it. But if you work with a lot of the tools that we're talking about, in early recovery, it can make that process speed it up, speed the healing process up and, and make it a little more effective. And it's really important because if you feel crappy for a long time, odds are you're going to just say F it and start using again. And we were talking about this. Should we curse on this thing? And it's like, well, you know, you're dealing with addiction. Everybody curses. So I'm going to just let it rip. And, you know, please, if you're under 83, don't listen to this. No, but, but, you know, we say that every relapse begins with a case of the fuckets. Yeah, you know, you say, "Oh fuck," you know, yeah. I just don't care, yeah. and boom, you start, or, or or whatever, you know, the the case may be. So, yeah. so yeah, so it's it. important that people start feeling better and having hope quickly, so they know that life is going to get better, and it's yeah. not just going to be a drag forever. Yeah. It was uh, really insightful to me too, and maybe you guys can comment on this a little bit. But uh, I was a chronic relapser for far too long. I never made it past that initial ninety day period for. Gosh, it took me years. And I think that the hypofrontality that uh, Bob, you were talking about is yeah. probably a big part of the reason. And once I was able to, through the daily practices, through getting my brain chemistry right again, was finally able to uh, recognize those symptoms when they came up and, and say no to the fuckets. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and, and again, let me let me just say about a little about the hypofrontality. You know, we talked about the Olds experiment and injecting the cocaine and trying to find out where the locus of addiction was in the brains of mice, and later they extrapolated that to bigger mammals and human beings. And it started out with the reptilian brainstream, that survival stuff. But also, they found out that when that kicks in, it begins to physically change the frontal part of the brain, the limbic system. Everything is affected. It starts out there. And what you have in, in, in um, severe late stage addiction is the, the reptilian brainstem and the limbic system's calling all the shots. And recovery is really bringing the locus of control of your life back to the frontal cortex and the more volatile portions of the brain that has values and love and cares and, and, and delay gratification, do all the things that a mature, healthy human being can do. So there's a real change. And that takes a little bit of time and work. I did a study, a word study on the word recovery some years ago. I was invited to speak at a Christian university here in Southern California on addiction. These were all therapists in training. They were all from Korea. I did a word study on recovery, and I, I, I actually took it into the Bible to see what references there might be. And there's one reference in the New Testament, and I, I can't call it to mind right now. There's one reference for the word that's used from the uh, original Greek 
really translates best as recover or recovery. And while I can't call up the word, it was very helpful for me to go into that. And it's implied in what you just said, John, um, and it's certainly implied in an integral model, is that what are we recovering? And to talk about it in the upper right-hand quadrant, which would be the physiological or the biomedical domain, it's recovering. Which we'll explain later, the quadrants yeah, yeah, for those yeah, of you who don't yeah. know that. But right now, a scientist would look at this and say, what you're recovering is your frontal lobe functioning. Yeah. And uh, that's, that, that, that makes complete sense. And then what that correlates in terms of my individual interior life is the ability to self-reflect, to begin to recover my morality in terms of my, and my compass and living in fidelity to that. What I'm recovering in relationships is responsibility and an openness to vulnerability, moving through the, the wreckage from the past, et cetera, in terms of healing all of that. And you could also say recovering your responsibility in the, in the outer world in terms of my work, my paying my taxes, et cetera. It, oh, really, yeah. helped, right. it really helped me for me, uh, for me to move recovery into kind of this deeper, richer zone. And I guess in the spirit of what we're saying, I really do believe that it's pretty impossible to uh, bypass having a biological foundation. It's not to say that you can't have moments. Uh, I've, I've had moments in, in ab, abject addiction. Absolutely. Sites and so on. Like so it's not to say that. But in terms of developing any head of steam, You've got, to, you, you've got to have the full brain functioning, the whole brain functioning. And for all uh, uh, chronic addicts, that's severely hamstrung. So, so recovering that is kind of the prelude to all the rest of the things. Yeah, and you can also say recovering your authentic self, then yeah. taking that authentic self and making yeah. it your best authentic self, which is part of the, yeah. the journey and the process and the practice. Yeah. I like how the Buddhists talk about recovering your original face before you were born. Mm -hmm. And anybody that's been in addiction and recovered, you really have a phenomenological, I mean, you have a sense of what that experience is. Like, ah, uh, this is who I really am. Uh, because I had a counterfeit sense of who I was. In fact, if you'd asked me when I was in the worst of my addiction, I'd say, no, this is really who I am. So I don't really believe that the experience inside is this is who I am. But once you've begun to really experience kind of getting around the, the bend on this one, then it's like, ah, this is my original face before I was born. And it's been a long while since I've made residence there. Yeah. Hang yeah. Out, and for people who may not have experienced that before they fell into their pattern of addiction, yeah. the discovering of that can do yes. a lot to keep them sober once they start cleaning up. Yeah. Uh, you know, and most, yeah. most people in my years of working with hundreds, not thousands of addicts and their families is, is that most of this stuff starts when you're an adolescent. People get their first they 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 join the party now that's not always the case but but most of the time it is and so you know you're at a, at a time where you're really developing and supposed to be finding out who you are all of that is really just cut off and so then when you do you know show up in your 30 and you're ready to get sober hopefully it doesn't take that long you have to go back and there's there's just years and years and years of development that hasn't happened you know emotionally intellectually spiritually physically all these different things and you have to play catch up and uh, amazingly enough, the body in most cases, if you're not, your liver's not shot and you're ready to die, clean up things before you lay your body down, but the body can be pretty forgiving and you can start getting back. You can get it back quicker than it took you the years to lose it. The universe is kind in that way. And one of the things, Bob, you were talking about, and one of the first classes I gave when I was working with, with students out in, in therapeutic wilderness programs and I an addict, you know, every, it was for a class for everybody. And I was, oh, well, everybody's addicted. Well, you know, there's addiction and addiction. Often there seems to be a real radical personality change. The Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, 
not maybe always, but definitely if that's going on, that is a definite sign that you are that type of addict and that's pretty serious. And, you know, the normally good, kind, okay person, it just turns into Mr. Hyde character, who is a murder sociopath. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote the, wrote the story, was writing about cocaine addiction. That was his metaphor. I mean, he was using this yeah. stuff the doc was figuring out. And Freud and all these people were using it back then. Cocaine and, oh, this is great. And then, oh, maybe it's not so great. So, yes, yeah, that radical change in personality. And that's really scary. Yeah. You know, what if you wake up, you know, you're coming back and, oh, crap. You beat the hell out of your wife or, or, you know, you did something horrible or you slept with somebody who was completely inappropriate or you stole money or got violent and your place is wrecked. I mean, it's horribly shocking. And uh, yeah, man, if you're, if you're at that stage in the journey, it's like, stop. You know, you know John brings up something for me. You're talking about this last point about what it does to our morality. You know, my dad worked in the prison system in California for most of his career. He was a psychiatrist, so he worked in, in uh, the various state prisons and worked with, I think he probably called them patients, but inmates. And I, I first was introduced to it through dad's work, and then I did my own research as I got into this field myself. But you can help me with this, you guys. I think, it, is it 80% or 90% of the prison population in the United States are there for drug-related offenses? Many I think of, it's 85 is, yeah, is the figure same, I've heard. It's split right down the middle, and it raises a huge you know, societal question mark other countries on the planet have different answers to this but that when we incarcerate people because they do god awful stuff we become moral cretins when hyperfrontality correlates with the, the worst behaviors we imprison them there's just there's something about that awareness that our prisons are full yeah people that have committed crimes under the influence or seeking to get high or in withdrawal or whatever selling using uh, and it's a little bit of a tautology to me it's like yeah, that's what happens when you're addicted. And then what we're going to do is we're going to imprison you. We won't treat your addiction, but you can't remove addiction from the equation with that kind of percentage you just talked about. So it raises a huge moral, ethical, political problem to me. And I don't have an easy solution to it. I used to tell people, I don't want somebody who's high that way on the streets with my daughter walking around. I'm very clear about that. It's no, absolutely. I'm very protective of that. At the same time, what kind of um, solution is it to us to just keep incarcerating how many millions of people do we have now in the country that are in prison? It's like, it's like some. Yeah, well, the large, largest percentage of any, any nation in the world. I'm bad at remembering percentages, but I know it's a large percentage. Yeah. And if you think of it, it's related to what we're talking about, there's some incredible tragedy involved in that. And I don't feel soft around the crimes, but I feel really pained by the ravages of addiction. And we're looking at right now in an upper right-hand quadrant way in terms of the biological this is the biological antecedent to crime, and 85% of them are in and around addiction. That's I would like to add, too, that a, a person in the depths of their addiction is certainly a danger to themselves and others, which is yeah, yeah. a reason to, to lock them up. But the, the problem with that is that a person who is locked up for, say, possession or intoxication and nothing else and is made to serve a long prison sentence for that reinforces the sense then because of the way prisons are forced to operate and the dynamic that must be kept to keep order made to feel like they are less than human which reinforces for some of those people the issues that caused them to use in the first place and perpetuates the cycle and i don't yeah, have the answer maybe yeah maybe this, this, this is a the completely huge question and maybe beyond the scope we we haven't got past cleanup yet yeah. <laughs> yeah, but no, but I, I think it's a, it's it's a major meta systemic problem, and they started 
the methamphetamine thing, they, they were actually cut down the production of methamphetamines in the United States because they stopped selling all these over-the-counter uh, drug uh, decongestion, Sudafeds or whatever that had the, the stuff they needed to make. So what happened? Well, the Chinese started sending it to Mexico and they're, you know, they're making it in Mexico now and, and across the border. And so why we can't get our good buddies from China to police, they're, they're sending over the chemicals to Mexico. That'd be a nice conversation to have, but it, it's really, it's really the equivalent of an invasion of war. These people that bring in and kill our children. And Ken Wilber said one time, he says, people have culture, civilization has a society has the the right to protect its children, not only the right, it has the duty of protecting its children. If we can't take these people out, I know ISIS are a bunch of maniacs and they deserve whatever they get, but we've never taken the cartels and drugs as seriously. And any country that supports uh, cartels and supports this kind of stuff, yeah, and we got problems. We consume a lot of drugs, but you can't send them in. And this is a state of war that exists. If you want to help us fight this, we'll get together. You know, we'll give you economic support and we'll be your best friend, but no more. That's just on the supply side. And I had a friend die recently from a new type of heroin, probably coming from China. And it's like 40 times as strong as your natural opioids and stuff that are coming out of Afghanistan. And he OD'd on this thing. I mean, bam. And and they were sending it in little, I saw, I actually saw this little, uh, it looked like, uh, candy, I don't know, chewy things that you pour out in your hand to eat like that. It was actually this this super, super synthetic, powerful opioid that's killing people all over the place. So, you know, those are, those are just one part of it. But let's kind of get back to, we got a lot to talk about. So we said clean up. So we kind of figured that out, right? You got to clean up your body. You got to clean up your, your interiors. And John, let me, let me interject something is that we've been looking at, at some really dark stuff here, not only individually, but societally. And I know that we're going to elucidate the quadrant model later, and uh, I'm, I'm fine with that. I also, I think I wanted to say implied in this, though, implied in just cleaning up before we leave it, I think is a very positive message. And I experienced this working with addicts myself, is that what I can help addicts to move out of the shame and beyond the stigma that societally, and like is implied in what you said, Doug, that legally, uh, our judicial system, et cetera, you know, we, we marginalize, we make pariahs of, of addicts. Uh, at any level, is that this idea of cleaning up, it's really my thread back towards hope, is that rather than being a fuck up, I have the possibility of cleaning up. And that's yeah. a very different message to me. And I really emphasize this with the clients. As soon as we begin to look at it in the kind of, here's things you can do. Here's what's going on with symptoms of post-acute withdrawal syndrome. Begin to, begin to get tools like this. It begins to kind of demobilize that shame inside and begins to get people realizing, until I get my act together, I will look like somebody who's a sociopath. But that doesn't mean that's what I am. That's what drugs will do to me. So I think implied in this, it's a major silver lining, or hopefully light it into the tunnel, I guess you'd say. Yeah, and that's a good point. When people are really in the late stages of addiction, you are a functional sociopath. Like people don't matter, values don't matter, your children don't matter. It's all about just securing the supply of the, of the desired substance or substances. And, and then there's parts of you that realize this is really, you know, bad. You're, you're really behaving in a bad way and it's very shameful. And of course, then you want to use more so you don't have to feel the voice of conscious. But when you, when you begin to sober up, then you start feeling that stuff. Like, oh my God, what have I done? And that's the return of a human. You know, that's the, you start feeling bad about the things you've done, but you're not bad because you're an addict. You know, you feel bad because you've done bad things because your addiction 
has empowered you to do that stuff. So the res- only moral responsible thing to to clean that up is to stop doing that. Get a hold of your life. Get the help you need. Do the work you need to do. Start the practices. Do the whole thing, the interior and the exterior work, and. Yeah. As in 12 steps, you've got to go back and repair, attempt to repair the damage you've done and make amends. All of that, you know, is kind of yucky and painful, but that's good pain. Okay, that's noble suffering. That's not ignoble suffering. And so we want to embrace noble suffering when we're feeling bad because we've done bad things or bad things are happening. It's okay to feel bad about that, but it's not just destroying yourself and feeling bad. That's, yeah. So embrace the noble suffering as part of the path. And it leads to the light and uh, stop doing the ridiculous stuff that's killing you and hurting so many people around you. You remind me of something that uh, you mentioned in one of our earlier podcasts, uh, Dr. Kevin McCauley and his work, Pleasure Unwoven, and also Gabor Maté's work up in uh, Vancouver, uh, In the Realm of the Hungry Ghosts. These are two of my favorite sources on working with addiction. And both of them talk about this. uh, And if you just mentioned this, In fact, last week in a group that I led at the Addiction Center, the Treatment Center, I asked a room full of addicts, even in the worst of your addiction, did you have some place inside of you that knew this was not right, knew this was against your integrity? And it really wasn't meant to be a leading answer. I really was interested to know there wasn't a single person in that room, and most of them had been advanced addicts and serious drug addiction. There wasn't a single person that didn't raise their hand and say, I absolutely always had that still small voice inside. And what I love about Kevin McCauley and Gabor Monte is they say, here's the paradox in terms of moving into recovery. Even with a, an impaired brain, hypofrontal brain, I've got to find that little pineal gland. <laughs> I've got to find that little point of light inside yeah. and, and do all I can to hang on to that. And that's where it begins. And so ironically, the addicted brain has to find a non-addicted part inside itself in order to begin the path towards recovery. So just want to toss that in there. It's one of these uh, incredible, it's a paradox. It's also incredibly, there's something beautiful about it to me. Is that even in the worst of the worst, there's still that still small voice inside saying, Bob, John, Doug, wake up, clean up. Absolutely. You know, and and a, a lot of it, you know, you say you have, when you start off your healthy self or your normal self, whatever, uh, the normal self without drugs, whatever that looks like, whether yes. it's unhealthy or not, it's like this. And then the addict self begins to grow. And as you feed it with more drugs, it gets bigger and bigger. And that becomes the dominating self, yes. your yes. addict. And the, the, the good self, the self that was there begins to shrink, shrink, shrink. So the addict self is like there. And your, your good self, that little point of light, is, it just gets smaller and smaller. And occasionally it'll break through and you go, oh, my God. But by that time, you're so powerless over stopping any of the behaviors and the consumption that just rolls on. So, so recovery can really be seen as, uh, oh, there's that story I love. Uh, I think I talk about my book, the, the two dogs. So this guy, there's different versions of this, but this guy has a dream and there's this like, well, there's this noble, I don't know, Ren Tin Tin type dog. And then there's this kind of evil junkyard dog, with a spiky collar and they're just, Arr. and they're fighting each other. You know? and, he, and he wakes up and he's freaked out. And in this version of the story, he, he, has, he has a mentor teacher who's a Native American medicine man. So he goes to him and he says, uh, grandfather, I had this dream. And there was this really noble, beautiful dog was just tearing up in this fight with this big, powerful, evil-looking dog. And I woke up and I was freaked out. And um, the, the medicine man says, grandson, don't worry. The, the good dog is going to win. And the good dog is your good self. And the, the, the bad dog is your evil self. Or you might say it's your, your authentic self. And the bad dog is your addict self in, yeah. in this case. Well, so but don't worry. The good dog's going to win. He said, well, grandfather, how can you know that? 
And he says, because you're going to feed the good dog. So that's really what recovery is about. It's a really nice metaphor. Are you, who are you feeding today? With that thought, with that food, with that action, with that, you know, where you're going right now or who you're hanging out with, you know, whatever karmic things you're unfolding in your life, who are you feeding? And you got to be the good dog if you're going to survive. If not, the bad dog, the addict self is going to kick your ass. And it really, it's so, you know, they call it, he succumbed to his demons or something. I'm talking about people who died I went to a funeral the other day and the guy drank himself to death and he said, uh, yeah, they were trying to say politely and they called it a demon, you know, and that's a really good way to say it because just as the good voice in your head said, no, don't do that. This is ridiculous. That addict self is like, I call it the evil lawyer within always trying to convince you, rationalize, doing whatever you deserve it. Oh man, you come on, man. It's been five years it's going to be different this time you know whatever because it the the attic brain knows you better than you know yourself almost so it just spins you so as you as you mature you begin to identify that voice and say thank you old bad dog but here get back in your puppy box where you go along and you go on so it's a very uh i mean you can look at it in christian mythic terms it's kind of an accurate thing because there does seem to be this very sly evil voice it's always trying to get you to start using again and its agenda is to kill you. It wants you to die of addiction. And that's what it's trying to mess with you. And that, that, that makes it a very complex thing because the voice is coming from inside of you. So, and that's exactly it. why the daily practices are so important. The uh, quote that you started the episode with talking about religion or recovery in this case is a practice. And that's important to strengthen that voice. I certainly had that demon voice bad. As, as the uh, authentic self would start to emerge once again, I would say, oh God, what have I done? And I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't have the tool set to handle it until I started with the daily practices and kept doing them on a consistent basis, waking up, learning to look for that authentic voice and how to strengthen it and pay more attention to it. Yeah, and I think I read somewhere that, that it usually takes people about four relapses you know, before they finally get it. And so you know, relapsing is a part of this disease. And I tell my students, all the, you know, all the work you did to strengthen your true self and your recovery and you're working on yourself, even though you have a slip or you fall on your face or a full-scale relapse, that doesn't mean that everything that went before was useless, okay? It, it's cumulative. It builds up. Just like if, you know, you worked out for years. And then when I went to um, grad school in the Bay Area, and I've been working in the wilderness. I went to the gym. I was in really good shape. Then I just sat in this little thing, ate and went to school and studied. And all of a sudden, I went home for Christmas and I was like, None of my pants fit, you know, I was like, oh my God. So anyway, I said, I can't, I got to get back exercising. And because I'd exercised for a year, muscle memory and everything, I was able yeah. to get back in that group. So I think that's true. And um, yeah. I mean, I, I hope it's true. And a lot of students have told me, thank you, John, that really helps. Yeah. So it doesn't mean, you know, because again, then when you relapse, the addict self was something like, oh, you scumbag, you're so evil, you deserve to die some more you know it's like yeah. hey man first you get me to do it then you condemn me when i do it and it's, it's just like it's just a, it's just a whole trip so um yeah at some point you achieve that critical velocity and have what it takes to not cure but escape it certainly and begin to see it as no longer the controlling self become a person who has an addiction rather than controlling i addict and that's a direct result of staying with it and keeping the daily practices front of mind Yes. I'll tell you something that comes to mind when I'm working with addicts and I think it helps for me to uh, be an addict myself in recovery is that cleaning up need not mean 
uh, what some addicts are concerned about, which is becoming lily white. I, I, I don't know if I can even talk about that right now, but I, I know it's been a concern. I work a lot with artists and the idea of cleaning up has this almost a kind of antiseptic ideal. And how am I going to continue to be creative or how am I going to continue to be passionate in sobriety? And so I've done a lot of work around this, both personally, but with, with addicts. They come up with a vision of, of sobriety or cleaning up that is full bodied. And I think at the beginning, it does require some whitening. I think it requires some really serious discipline. So I'm not sure. against that. But I want to, uh, when I'm working with addicts and certainly my own recovery, I want to point towards a more whole bodied image. I'll share this image real quickly. And I, I've shared it before with you, John, I believe. Carl Jung, who was instrumental in the early development of AA, was a student of alchemy, which was kind of a pre-chemistry, pre-scientific view of chemistry. And he said this, he says that we all start off identified with the black. That would be the unconscious. And he called that uh, the negredo. That's from the Latin word for black. Or or the darkness of addiction in this case, you know, just that whole scene. Yeah, yeah. And so that the goal, let's go with addiction. So then we go from that and the move is towards whitening the black. And that's called moving into albedo, uh, again, Latin for white. He says a lot of people assume that you're done at that point. Let's say that in addiction, you're done. Well, now you've whitened yourself, John. No, you're halfway there in Jung's view. From an alchemical perspective, the goal is to go back towards the black, but to integrate it with the resources of the white. And if you combine white, albedo, and black, nigredo, you don't come up with gray. You come up with what the alchemist called rubedo, which is red. The goal is to, to ultimately is to be red, where you carry the best of the darkness, but that it's contained and managed uh, through the white, and that you're neither one or the other, but through both. When I offer some image like this to addicts in recovery, especially those that are dependent upon their creative resources or athletes the same way, how do I, I can't be this kind of white antiseptic head only person. An uh, image of Rubedo can be really um, a saving image. Does that make sense you guys what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's a whole nother yeah. uh, hallway to explore and it makes complete sense. I don't, I don't mean to say that, that you go from black to red, and I make this clear to clients, but if I don't hold out some ideal of a rubedo, and all they see is a future of albedo, for many of them, that can be a trigger for hopelessness. It's like, well, yeah, and, and a lot of that is just people's projection, what sobriety, what am I going to look like if yeah. I can't be myself, and, and the myth of enlightenment, you know, am I going to walk through walls and, you know, touch <laughs> and heal everybody and understand all mathematics and all the internet and all the different programs and all apps will be accessible in my brain. No, not what enlightenment. And yeah, so a lot of that, you just have to become a more grounded experience, what it means to be a real human being who's not having your butt kicked by drugs and alcohol. You know, yes. you still make mistakes, you clean up your messes, you have moments of clarity and genius and good stuff. Then you do some really stupid stuff, which keeps you humble and lets people around you know you're human like everybody else. And it, it becomes, your imperfection becomes a perfection. That's just it's your humanity. It's all of us. And it actually becomes beautiful and endearing and uh, funny. And uh, it's just the way it is. So, yeah. So if you think you're getting to this thing of perfection or some, you know, medieval saintly statue, you know, I don't think so. You know, so <laughs> and I certainly know I'm, I'm in no danger of becoming that uh, anytime soon. So. There's a cleaning up in terms of getting the drugs out of your system and getting clean. And then there's the ongoing process of cleaning Absolutely. up and doing the shadow work. Ongoing um, lifetime. And that's something that you, yeah, is ongoing lifetime. Like you said, John, it uh, can be channeled for those of you who are artists, writers, musicians, painters, 
creating that artwork and dealing with all that stuff that comes up on a daily basis can lend power not only to your art, but your art could be a really good way to process that. I highly encourage anyone who's concerned about that to sit down at the keyboard, pick up your instrument or whatever it is you do and work with it in that way. It's incredibly freeing uh, what you can come up with when your brain is working correctly because the drugs are out of your system. Absolutely. Yeah, it gets better. You get, you get a flow state from drugs, but then you find that there's natural flow states that's even better, higher, and it's more real, not a counterfeit. Let me, let me finish with a poem by Rumi, you guys. It's really, oh, apropos, it's really apropos of what you just said, Doug. Rumi says, uh, Rumi's a 13th century Persian poet. He says, today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. <laughs> That's awesome. That Thank great? you. Thank you, Rumi. What a, what, a, yeah. what a channel he had going, huh? Mm. Oh, look, it's a wonderful place to wrap this. So thanks, everybody. And uh, emails there. Get a hold of us. We also have, you know, we get, there's coaching available through us or through others or, you know, colleagues. One of the truths about addiction, if you're a real addict, you can't do it alone. So allow us to be there for each other and, and do this journey together. Amen. Amen. God bless everybody. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit us on iTunes and hit subscribe for a new episode every Friday. While you're there, you can help others share the journey and the joy of integral recovery by leaving your five-star rating and a quick review. We're grateful for your support, and we'll see you next time on the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast.